Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Writing for Your Life. Um, this is the Meet the Editors webinar series, and our guest this afternoon is Jimmy, Jenny Baumgartner. Sorry, Jenny. And uh, Jenny is Editorial Director and Acquisitions Editor at one of the divisions of HarperCollins. So you've probably known them as Thomas Nelson and now as Nelson Books. And um, I can let Jenny uh, go into more details in terms of what that means and, you know, what the different uh, parts of HarperCollins are. But um, in any event, we're really glad to have Jenny join us today. She's presented at some of our in-person conferences and um, just as an outstanding person to have with us with us today. Um, Jenny's going to go through her presentations, and we'll take Q&A at the end. And there is a chat function on your screen, um, so you can enter questions by text, and um, we'll get to them later in the presentation. So, Jenny, um, thank you for joining us, and take it away. Thank you, Brian. I'm happy to be here. I'm going to pull up my uh, PowerPoint. Let's see if I can get it back up again so we can all take a peek. There it is. Hooray. Okay. So my name is Jenny Baumgartner. I am here at HarperCollins Christian Publishing. I'm here to give you an inside look at an acquisition editor's job. And so I have been in publishing for 20 years now. I'm going to give you a little bio of myself. Um, senior acquisitions editor here at Nelson Books. It's a division of the Christian Publishing at HarperCollins. Um, and I joined Thomas Nelson in the gift book division 20 years ago in 1998. And then I've edited some non and fiction, acquired both. Um, I've partnered with many award-winning and some New York Times best-selling authors. In fact, one of my authors just went to the New York Times bestseller says um, last week and hit the Wall Street Journal in USA Today this week. So I'm super excited for her. It's really a great excitement to be part of that with um, when your authors succeed because they work so very hard. Um, but I have a master's in English and I've taught a good bit of college English. Um, so, but I promise I don't really um, edit or grade um, grade my author's manuscripts. I edit them, but <laughs> I don't take off for comma splices. But I spend a lot of my free time consuming a lot of uh, coffee or tea, usually coffee, and being a slightly insane mother to twins. So one of them is homesick today. Here's a little bit about HarperCollins Christian Publishing. There are many publishers on the market that publish um, Christian materials or publishers that do um, at least spiritual materials. We distinctly here at HarperCollins Christian Publishing um, publish Here's our mission statement. We inspire the world by meeting the needs of people with content that promotes biblical principles and honors Jesus Christ. So we have Bibles, books, academic resources, a curriculum, and both traditional and a lot of digital formats because digital has become quite large um, in the last five years especially. Um, we have two foundational publishing groups. Publishing groups, Thomas Nelson, the one I'm a part of, which is Nelson Books is the division specifically, it's called, and Zondervan. We also are the home to Olive Tree Bible Software. It's a biblical resource that makes studying God's Word accessible anywhere in the world. Um, and Bible Gateway is the world's largest Christian website. So our headquarters are here in Nashville, Tennessee. So you hear the southern twang. I'm definitely southern. And we also have offices in Grand Rapids. That's where Sondervan's located in Spokane, Washington. And we have a large foreign languages operation. We have a lot of books that sell into Mexico City, Mexico in general, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, but also worldwide. So those are some offices that we have in those locations. So I'm going to talk about the acquisitions editor. And I've been acquiring for probably um, uh, since about 2003. I started as an associate editor and then went to an editor position and then into acquisitions for fiction first and then into nonfiction. So um, the first part of our my job is acquisition because without acquiring books, without buying books, there's no, no books to publish and there's no job and there's no publisher. So first and foremost is I acquire books means I, the, the company basically, metaphorically speaking, as my friend often says, gives us a credit card and they say, go buy books that are going to sell and um, make a profit for us of some sort, shape or form. Um, and then you do your job to really shape it and develop it with the author, which is number two, book development. 
um, where I shape the actual manuscript in partnership with the author, while standing in the stead of the reader. Because really, my job is to be the liaison between the reader and the author. So to help them uh, understand each other, to be that connecting point for them. And the last thing I do is publication. I really have to understand how the book will get to the market. Um, what are the avenues for that? How, what, what group would it really speak to the most, that particular book? What are the core niches or audiences that this book is going to be appealing to? So these are my three key responsibilities in acquisition. And um, as you can see, one of them is inherently in, in, introverted, but the other two not so much. So it stretches me a little bit as an introvert. I want to point out one thing I think few people will ponder when they think of an acquisitions editor, but I'm an evangelist. Now, I'm a Christian as well, but, <laughs> but I'm an evangelist for my company in that I'm a representative for Nelson Books. So I connect the house, meaning the publishing house, to the author. I explain to the author who we are and what we publish and who our team is, and it's very relational in that way, but also the author to the publishing house. So what I love about this industry, particularly being in Christian publishing, is that passion drives it. Passion for books, passion for the messages in the books. Um, there's just a deep love for what we do. Um, and so I have to grab onto the content of this book and really have a passion for that author and the message and convey that to the author and then vice versa to my team. And one of the things I really have to do, and it's interesting to um, see how every editor does this, but you create what I call a conversion narrative. I've heard that actually mentioned in the industry before from other acquisitions editors. But it's a, my own script, my own reasons for why people should buy into this book, literally and figuratively. Why this is such a fantastic um, content and author why it needs to be shared with the world, why we need to spend the money, and why we need to get behind it in um, ways that are both tangible and intangible. So I share that with um, both the author to some extent, of course, but with my team and the whole company to ignite, ignite their excitement for the book. Um, because your acquisitions editor is your person, you're called, I'm called your lead editor if I'm your editor in-house. And I am the one that basically champions your book everywhere I go, in the company, outside of the company, at conferences, with colleagues. Um, so if I'm standing at the water cooler, it's my job to tell the head of our key account sales about these exciting things that are happening with your book. Um, what is in it, why it's going to speak to a certain tribe of people, um, what part spoke to me personally, um, why he or she might love it, to really get that fever pitch going about the book. That's my job in-house. So um, I worked on a book that had uh, some content about boundaries in it. So I always like to say to those authors, which I did in-house, is that whenever I'd cross paths with salesperson or even publishers or marketing and, and publicity, I'd say, you know, would you like boundaries with that? Like when you're at McDonald's and they say, would you like fries with that? It's with, would you like boundaries with that? Because I'm just trying to bring out the content of that book and conversations to get that excitement going in-house and really pitch it continually. So, um, so I'm somewhat of a, an evangelist about just sharing the good news in that book. Let's see. Um, I want you to see here, uh, it's a, our marketing team created this um, slide, and it's um, from our survey. We have a proprietary survey um, software and system we do here, and we this is probably a year old now, but I have to understand who our market is here for Nelson Books. That's one of my jobs. And this is just breaking up the Christian segments, um, Who who's out there, who is buying our books. And so... 18% um, of our Christian book buyers are um, first. They're Christians. This is just the Christians, not not just Christians buy our books by any means. By any means, that's for sure. But um, this is the active Christians are 18%, and these are the people that probably evangelical Christians, salvation through Jesus Christ, active Bible readers and church attendees, and they're active in sharing their faith. There's professing Christians. They're 26% of Christian book buyers. Um, they're strong in their beliefs less active a little bit in church attendance and Bible reading or discussing their faith. Um, and they're less in reading inspirational material than active Christians, but it's still a big segment. 
liturgical. I'm sure you all know what liturgy is and what kind of denominations that would be. Um, however, those are the people that definitely recognize the authority of the church. Baptism is also recognized and essential. They still serve the church and the community. Those are key hallmarks. And we have sort of the private Christians who have a very individual approach to religion. They pray alone. They're not really involved in church, so meaning they might be praying on their own time. Um, they're not really coming to church to pray or in small groups or whatever we want to call those ways we pray in community. Um, they still believe in God and doing good works. They're key tenets of that. Then we have cultural Christians. Um, these are the ones uh, that we sometimes call the nuns, um, or maybe the nuns would be even their own segment, but they don't have a particular um, religious persuasion or a denomination. These people see many different approaches to religion and faith, salvation regardless of religion. There's separate separation between religion and politics. They're not involved in church or the Bible or really sharing their faith. So I just have to keep this in mind as an acquisitions editor for my company. So if you were to come up against a, an acquisitions editor for, say, Tor Forge, that's a publishing company, they have a definition of what their books um, and the what books they need to acquire and who their audience is, who their core buyers are. So the acquisition center has to kind of have that in the background at all times and know where these people kind of exist and live and what they crave and what they want to do. And with that survey that you just saw, some more of the things my marketing team tested were things like um, what felt needs do that do people have? What are the things that people are buying books? What is the, the core sort of um, need they have to drive them to buy a book. And that could be anxiety, finances, um, fear of the future, things like that. So we have some great information for our, our marketing team on that that helps me just kind of look for books as well. Um, so how do I find books to publish? Well, I'm always told don't publish bad books. That's not a joke, but <laughs> I have to um, look in several avenues in, uh, from my company. And here are this key places I look. Um, the number one way is through proposals. And these are only at our company, they're only solicited, meaning it's come through an agent usually, or one of the ways below um, that bullet that you see here on my screen. Um, and this is a little bit of a departure from when I started in publishing in 98. We did have this slush pile at that time. And the slush pile still exists. I mean, I still have a slush pile per se, but um, indeed the slush pile was helpful when we didn't have ways of finding authors and writings because there wasn't as much internet and there weren't cell phones and we didn't have media, we didn't have social media, we didn't have blogs, we didn't have these all these ways that we can now find writers. Um, there's just more access and more um, just awareness. There's a heightened way to, as you know, privacy is not really as um, <laughs> as key of a part of our culture as it used to be. So we could uh, sort of get an inside glance at various people doing various things in the world without needing to have proposals mailed to us. Um, and even emails uh, can be too thick, and so I typically don't even ask for unsolicited emails. Um, unless, again, let's go down to the other four bullets. Um, well, relationships with agents, that's big for me because sometimes I'll even call an agent that a solicited means that comes from an agent typically for me. Um, and I, I foster the relationships with agents um, because there's one agent I really adore because she gets to know me and I've gotten to know her. And she knows everything about my children, my interests. Um, we just chat from time to time because she'll then know when she has an author or an idea that's extremely uh, appealing, would be extremely appealing to me particularly. Because again, that passion is what the author needs from me and my publishing company needs from me. So if it's a good match with my interests and um, topics I really enjoy reading and working on, then that agent sends them to me. And I think that's a wise way to agent. Um, and so that's something I do continually. Is, and I'm also trying to meet new agents and to explain to them what we publish and who I am and what I'm looking for. Um, and that's a key part of my job that's also changed since 1998. Um, 
in 98 there were agents. There weren't as many representing Christian materials. Um, and since then, we now have a couple of really big sort of mega Christian agencies um, that represent a lot of these big name Christian authors. Um, and over time, more and more authors have taken on writers who are Christians. And so I have to really view the agent as my coworker more than ever. They, they're the ones that really get the slush pile more so these days. They're the ones that do the hard work to review, you know, as much more than I do in terms of unpublished authors. Um, and they send me their proposals. They work on the proposals. And I often, actually I usually do, tweak their proposals before I take it to my next step in house. But agents are hugely important to me and to you all. I highly recommend agents because they can be your um, your person to teach you about contracts and just the publishing process and advocate for you when you might be too nervous to ask your editor or your marketing team for something or um, they just might have some great ideas I can I can glean from the agent for your book. They've worked on a similar book. So they're super, super helpful and a key, key, key person to have in the industry these days more than it ever used to be. Um, another way is just context with professionals. So I may have friends, I do have friends, my past in academic publishing and academic, um, just have, getting my master's and my coursework and my PhD, just professors that are experts in various areas. And those are some of my professional contacts. It could be doctors because we might be working on a book that's for health. It could be um, uh, just a person that I've asked actually, a, a girlfriend of mine who has a criminal justice degree to, um, she listens to podcasts about criminal justice issues and she'll kind of tell me if anybody's, um, uh, she's actually a detective and she'll tell me if anybody's a Christian and I might should look into a certain podcast to see if there's a book idea in there for that author or that speaker. Um, so various professionals, they'll send me ideas. Um, what I really do a lot of is stalking. Uh, I used to call it, I'm a Christian stalker essay, um, but I'd go to book festivals even, or to um, writing festivals, writing conferences, or even just a conference about business or something like that, and I would stalk somebody I thought might be a good person to talk to about a book, and so, um, and that, that's really fun to me because creating um, the book idea in tandem fresh with the author is just an exciting thing to do. Sometimes when my agents send me a proposal, I'll look at it and I'll say, well, I like that idea, but I see this person mentions this and they have credentials in that. I wonder if they would tweak this topic and redo the proposal on this instead. And that's happened more often than not for me, actually, where I'd just sort of come up with the, with the author. I'd come up with a new idea and we'd develop it together and work on that one. So I've acquired a couple of books like that. Um, it wasn't the original idea it came in with, and that's really exciting to me. Um, so I do attend conferences uh, where you, I meet with speakers, writers, and so on. Um, in fact, at most writers' conferences, um, Brian Elaine's conferences, you can meet with acquisitions editors, make an appointment, and um, I do have acquired books that way. I know other acquisitions editors who have acquired books, and uh, one friend of mine acquired a New York Times bestselling fiction author um, out of a Mount Herman conference. I think this was a, a couple of years ago. Um, so anyway, she's. It's a great way to meet with people is to go to these conferences, and I highly recommend the ones that Brian um, actually offers for that reason alone, because you'll get to interact and rub shoulders with people who can. Um, get you over the transom, you know, just get you into the, that door and, and have the conversations. Okay, here's my process at Nelson Books for acquiring. Um, and every house is different. I want to tell you, it's very different. It could be different for scholarly publications or publishing houses. Um, it could be different for a smaller house versus a larger house. Now, HarperCollins is one of the big five publishers. And so we do have a quite, of a, quite a thick uh, review process. And so this is a lot of extra um, work for me, I'd say. Um, our vetting is intense. Our vetting is um, very thorough. And um, maybe that you can say that's what, what makes us successful. Um, 
or it could be just that we're OCD and we have to do a lot of paperwork and um, analysis <laughs> before we can acquire a book. But um, some have much, many fewer steps and much faster approvals. But this is what I need to do here at HarperCollins Christian is after I find a proposal that I'm convinced is a good good one that I love um, and then I have to take it to what I call is the editorial board and <clears throat> or ed board for short and it meets up about bi-weekly and it's all the editors the publishers marketing and publicity um, and marketing and publicity don't always come sometimes I have to ask for their input ahead of time and take it to the meeting um, because they just have a lot going on and they can't they really don't have as much time to vet uh, potential books as they do need to spend their time on uh, promoting the books that we have acquired and that are about to come out. So, um, And in that book, Editorial Board, honestly, the idea there is to kill everything. And anything that's left standing might get to go to the next level. <laughs> so it's a, it's a difficult place. That's where my conversion narrative needs to be strong. That's where I need to have all my ducks in a row convince my team why I want to move forward with this um, this book and possibly buy it for publication. Um, the next step then, if they do approve it, to go into the next step is a publishing board, which we call pub board, and that's also bi-weekly. Um, and for that, I need to create a brand new proposal. I use a template with the information that I know our sales channels will need and our finance people would need. So who comes to that one is basically sales and uh, some finance. And so I need to have everything from, um, we'll talk about your proposal in a little bit here, but um, from comparative titles, because our sales teams say when they go into um, like Barnes and Noble or BAM um, or even on Amazon, in a way, they need to show what a comparative title is that has sold well or decently well. Um, so meaning that, you know, if you go into, um, I don't know, an ice cream store, you say, if you like um, Rocky Road, then you may also like Jim O'Gom and Fudge. It's just to show that there's similar, some similarities in these books. And so it would be a different author, um, similar topic, and a comp title that sold well. That's one thing on there. We have to really hone in to show this is where me understanding the audience and the market and how to publish a book comes in because I need to analyze um, who the core readers are and what their needs are. And therefore, I need to write down who, okay, who are the first five to 10,000 readers? Who are, who is that core? Um, there's nothing worse just for, for me to pass on to you from my experience is when I see a proposal that claims um, this book is for all females and males over age 18. <laughs> well, no, that's already going to kill your book because um, there's no book that's ever been uh, a bestseller that was targeted that way. In fact, you'll read some famous writers that comment on um, they have a particular reader in mind when they write. They actually envision this person sitting across the table from them are a couple of these people. Like Harry Potter may have gone huge to everybody and their grandmother has read it, and you know, from age whatever, eight, six, whatever, to 100, um, all across the world, but it was targeted to young adults, and it was targeted in the fan fantasy genre. It had a core five to 10,000 readers that they started with and exploded out of there. So, for example, our marketing team will take that core readership and start there because we have to find a way to at least meet an, um, a particular audience and market where they are and show them this is appealing to you, this is what you want. And they grow a whole marketing and publicity plan around those people. And then they have other ways to go broader, but have to. that's one of the things I have to do in my Pubboard proposal, though. Um, and there are other elements of that in my proposal that I need to create, but I'll move on just to get you through my process here. So after pub board, I run some financial numbers um, based on what the sales predictions are and um, for the numbers they think they can sell in the first year. And I go back to my core acquisitions team, which is really just the publishers, two publishers, and the editors, and say, here's what I got. 
here's their questions, here's what they said, and I still, I think we should do it. I think we should make an offer, and here's what I'd like to offer. So we have another meeting at that point. And when I get their thumbs up, um, we just circulate for some approvals, and we offer, I then can make a deal points letter, which is an offer that just goes through the key um, contract points, what I'd offer for licensing and um, audio, and, and is it a trade book, uh, and, and what would be the royalty rates, and what would be the advance, and all those things are in my deal points letter, and I send that to the agent and say a little prayer and hope that this author is now um, convinced that we're the best house for them and that I'm the best editor for them and they hurt my vision for their book and hopefully by then even we've had a call with this author and a couple of my marketing people may have joined me and they've also talked about what resonates with them for the book and um, so that's, that's how we make the offer. And there's a non-standard way, I have to say, every now and then we have a proposal that comes in that we have a week. I may have a week just to look at it. I don't know, it's the editor, the agent's discretion about that. Um, and I might have to turn it around really fast. I can do emailing to those people and those uh, the levels that you just seen and talked about, talked about and the ones you see here on the PowerPoint um, screen. Uh, it just is a little bit hard to get as much excitement. Um, there may be some confusion even about the content. Um, some people may be traveling. I might be able to not get in touch with certain people. So um, ideally, it's better to follow our process. However, I've done offers with just an email pitch and, and done it from a Friday, Monday to a Friday and made my offer on a Friday. Um, and that it is a little bit more work for me just because I have to track down the people to get the input. And I really have to, you know, knock on some doors, make some calls maybe to find who I need to find to um, persuade them that this is the book I would like to make an offer on because we need to acquire it. So, let's see. Here is um, a couple of pieces I wanted to point out about proposals. Okay, so how to pique my interest. Um, I review and evaluate proposals for, for me, three key elements, and I think this, um, I, brought, I got these three ways this is worded from an agent friend of mine I've known for a good, a good long time, um, but those three areas are idea, writing, and platform. Um, so we even have, when we go to our EdBoard meeting that you just saw or talked about, um, we even have this online scoring system that my team does. We go in and we actually put from one to five, we rank each proposal um, one to five in each of those areas. And so, meaning that um, you could have a great idea, lousy writing, and a terrible platform, and it just not make it through. Um, you get, you know, it's a three-pronged stool. If you have two of them, that's a great support for you. Um, two out of three would be great. So anyway, when we're in that board meeting, we do analyze these things, but I also analyze them well before that. So idea is a unique and compelling idea that's focused on a core audience. So again, um, does this author know that audience? Um, what are the credentials? What is their experience? What are they bringing to the table on this idea? Um, and, and this is something I usually say at writers' conferences. What themes are popular, are growing in popularity? What are the cultural touch points out there right now? What are, what are people talking about? Um, and then how can you contribute in a way that's fresh and unique? What's your unique take on it? Don't worry if there's already something out there on that topic or that idea or that theme because um, there's nothing new under the sun, right? It's um, it's in the Bible. <laughs> Te technically, I mean, there's all kinds of books out there um, that even talk about this in terms of creativity in that um, you, we build on somebody else's ideas. That's how we create. And so um, you just make it your own is what you do. And there's no one that can write it just like you write it. There's no one that brings the same um, mind sort of mapping to the book that you do um, or the idea that you do. There's no one that's going to filter the exact same experiences that you do. So um, just show us how that's different um, and how you um, 
how you compare with other books on the market. And again, that's part of the proposal that I have to do. It's helpful if you do it and you look for what's already in the market. You see um, what's selling and why that's selling and then show me how yours is different and why it's going to also be um, popular, hopefully, or at least sell. Um, so let's see, another angle then is the writing. So um, of course as editors, I always kind of chuckle. My team would love to have stellar writing, just this wonderful writing, if possible. And um, at the same time, I'm always kind of defending in-house if there's just get her done. <laughs> Sorry, as you know, the community, comedian that probably says that, get her done writing. But it's just getting the job done because there are a lot of books out there are not literary writing. Um, that most books are not. And so... <clears throat> Can you convey your point clearly and effectively? Have you structured it, the, the proposal um, with a clear arc and development for your idea? Um, have you really dug deep into each um, area you're going to cover in this book idea? Have you really examined it thoroughly and let it bake and let it percolate in your brain so that um, it's a thorough and a thorough proposal. So, um, so stellar writing includes some of your thinking um, as well. I know that the idea is before that, but um, we want to see in the sample writing. Yes, I do need a sample chapter or two um, to to analyze how you put together the critical thinking on that particular idea you just um, pitched in your proposal. Um, and another one is uh, the dreaded platform. Um, which you hear about all the time, I'm sure. And some authors at writers' conferences uh, become a little discouraged about platform. Um, uh, if you think in terms of how publishers really invest in first-time writers, I mean, it's a, it's a tens of thousands of dollars in a first-time writer. Um, the number of people working on your book, the, um, you have a whole marketing and publicity team in-house, editors, more than one editor, I'm your lead editor, but after I have your book, we go through the substantive editing, which is the developmental editing. Um, there then is, are many levels of additional editing uh, that I pass it on to one of our managing editors, our production editors in-house, after we have the core manuscript finished, and they put it through um, several more layers of editing and it's a copy edit which can take a month um, a great copy editor will dig and analyze your facts and check your sources and uh, look at your word choice really carefully we'll show you areas where things might not quite make sense we'll also have your book edited for the style manuals or the publishing style which is the chicago manual style but we also have our house style um, and so you have a couple of editors working on it. You also have designers. Uh, we have you know, cover design. You're, you have copywriters for your back cover copy. Um, so there are just a ton of people working on your book. You have a whole team, and there are many more steps than I'm guessing you probably have even in mind. So there, the platform, in a way, especially in this day and age, um, there are so many ways to create platform. Um, and it's not just social media, although I will tell you we do use social media as one of our uh, touch points for an analyzing platform, um, especially like Facebook and Instagram, Twitter. Um, if you have a high number in one of those, that's really helpful to my team because, the, again, the investment um, it, that the publisher is placing in you is, um, is, is vast, really, and they need to know where are they going to find that core 5,000 people who want to hear about you, want to hear your book idea, they want to read your book, that, that somewhere they can start to um, at your core fan base. You may not think of them as fans, but the people who do know of you, at least. So um, we've had people have their platform based on um, public speaking, some people come in with a, a good number of public speaking. Some people have built an email database over the years. Email's a big one. Um, some people, I mean, of course, there are people that have TV shows or on even the local 
new segment. Um, we've had writers who have a column in newspapers. They write regularly for that. Um, but some way to show that there is a, a, a foundational group of people who are eager to pick up your book. Somewhere to start. Um, otherwise, we just throw your book out and you know, who is going to find it? How are, how are they going to find it? There's so many books published a year. Um, Brian might be able to tell me what the current answer to that is. I think it's, is it 100,000, 200,000 books published a year? I don't even know a ton. So we need somewhere to start some core group of people that will become your um, diehard readers and they want to buy your first book or your second book or whatever it is. So, um, but you need to convince us that you have an ability to reach a specific targeted audience and, um, and tell us who they are. It could be influencers, maybe from past jobs. Um, you may already have someone who's committed to writing a foreword or endorsing your book. Give us those lists of those names. Um, all those things kind of contribute to platform. So these are how to, these are the things that pique my interest when I'm reviewing a proposal in-house. Um, and I have certain areas that I prefer personally to work on. Um, I have some background in psychology and counseling, and I really love books that analyze the sort of life of the mind and interactions between people, almost, um, and that veers into sociology a little bit. But I, I love personality tests, if that tells you anything about me. But um, I, I love books that really dig into um, even mental health. Now, these aren't always big sellers, so I have to be find a way to make it more general market appeal um, and not sort of like an academic book of some sort in that area. Um, another area I enjoy publishing and working on is motivational and um, self-help. Um, and that, from a Christian perspective, would just be um, Christian living, maybe. How to do some self-improvement, increase your relationship with God, um, Jesus Christ. Um, how to understand who God is and what he's saying to you personally, so you can grow your faith. Um, the self-help could also be um, anything from uh, an entrepreneur, um, the, some marketing, self-publishing, um, self-small businesses. Let's see, uh, any kind of self-help topic. I'm having a hard time coming up with something. Some, but um, some people also um, write books on um, so building your self-confidence and your self-esteem. We are publishing um, Tom Ziegler coming out, um, Choose to Win, and how to make good choices in your life every day to move you closer to your goals and your success. Those are my kind of books I love. Um, we have spiritual formation and spiritual growth are really great books. We publish Lisa Turkhurst and Jen Hatmaker. Um, we publish oh, for Finance, Dave Ramsey and John Maxwell and business books. So those are some really great, exciting one, ones about, um, you know, self-help and, and personal growth. So those are my particular interests. Um, and every acquisition editor has her own interests. So um, if you, that's why the agents are so important, because they know how to get to know the agents. Uh, acquisitions editors and they know who to send it to so it will not just get rejected it will get a really honest look by an acquisitions editor um, and I probably receive hmm, 20 proposals minimum a month and so um, and, and so that's a lot to just kind of look at um, and while I'm also editing my books a year we publish about 40 books here a year at Nelson and um, I have my own books I'm the lead editor for, and I have to do the developmental substantive editing and be involved in really every step of the process for my books, all the way until it launches, and then some even, too. So, um, and it's, I love this job. It's a fantastic job for that. So, um, let's see. Well, um, Brian, I can keep talking, or we can do some Q&A if you'd like. I mean, I, have, I can keep going in all kinds of these areas, but that's, um, I think that's my last slide. Let me see. Looks like it. It is my last slide. Okay. Okay. So why don't you take it off sharing? Uh, take it off screen sharing then, and okay. we can just we can start the Q and A. So um, as I mentioned earlier, if folks want to uh, write or type in 
a message in the chat box, then we'll um, get that to Jenny. But um, in the meantime, why don't I um, just get started? Um, can you talk a little bit about, like, assuming that you've already gotten past some of the points that you were talking about, um, you know, in terms of idea and writing style or writing quality and platform, things like that, when you're actually looking at a manuscript, mm -hmm. what are the things that kind of stand out the most, meaning that what are the most important aspects, I'm, I'm, let's just pick nonfiction, say, um, for the moment, what are the most important yeah. things that you look for? In the manuscript, um, honestly, I'm a big structure person, and so I really like to see that there's some rhyme or reason to the order of the chapters. They're developing a point. They've introduced it at the beginning, um, and they're doing a teaser, perhaps, at the beginning, and they're going to develop, develop it thoroughly as the book goes on. So even in nonfiction, um, because I moved from nonfiction, fiction to nonfiction in the last two years. So um, there's still an arc in this, the, the elements of that book. And I want them to even have those um, key, sometimes an emotional up and down in the chapter if possible. Leave some cliffhangers in there, reveal some um, narrative. Um, I always look for them to include some anecdotes or uh, use narrative, story, the power of story to even convey their nonfiction topic. So I would like to see that they've really worked hard to look at how this book is going to be um, quote unquote scripted. How is it going to communicate the message? Um, and sometimes I get a little frustrated because it seems like they just sort of smash together some chapters. Um, and certain chapters don't go next to each other very well. But um, and so I then suggest moving things around and maybe developing another angle for another chapter. But um, that is one of my big things is structure and development. So, so we've got one really interesting question uh, from one of our attendees asking about work for hire projects. And her perception is that those are becoming more common. Um, you know, maybe a case where an editor reaches out to an agent or an author to write something specifically. Mm -hmm. How much of that have you seen? In our division, we do mostly um, they're author-driven projects. Honestly, um, every now and then I've come up with an idea and asked agencies to look for a writer to write on that topic. But uh, it, it's it's more common in your Zonder kids. Um, and it's common in children's books, it's common in gift books, and we do have gift books divisions here. We have Tommy Nelson, Years Under Kids, and we have our specialty division and the curriculum division. They often work with work for hire, in fact, constantly. Um, they have people creating devos for them, and so, um, and those, if you think about how we need to market our trade books, we wouldn't have as much opportunity to find that core readership, the first five to 10,000 readers, if it's um, just a topic base, whereas a Devo itself has its core readership, a devotional book. Um, kids' book have, has, has a core readership just because of the genre that is. Um, and so we don't, you know, what we do for work for hire is we'll have ghost writers. We have authors that we want to sign and I have signed and I have to I need to find a, a good fit for them in terms of a writer sometimes that writer gets a byline sometimes it's a shared um, you know cover treatment with um, it's such and such with the writer's name and that is a work for hire um, and, and in that sense we we do we might partner an author with an established name or <coughs> with a work for hire um, and it, 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 that's a challenge for me to make sure it's a good fit, though, because the personalities have to click, the writing and the voice have to click, and I've had a couple of um, mishaps in that area. Um, but we do we do have ghostwriters or writers with the trade books, but it wouldn't it would always have a lead name of someone that already has some sort of platform in trade books. It would anyway. So sure, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think I didn't realize that the whole work for hire concept was as um, 
common even in you know the children's or the devotionals. I th I thought the most of the world worked the way that you were describing you know the the things that you do. But it's nice to know that, or good for me to know at least, that there are different models used in some of those other genres. Oh yeah, there's certain publishing companies that use solely work for hire, and I'm afraid to say it out loud because I might be wrong. But uh, I haven't. We, when our, one of our editors came from a smaller house, so she said that that's all they did was they really worked. They did work for hire. Hmm. So um, they didn't have those sort of big author names. You know, people, they follow authors. You know, if you're a James Patterson fan, you're going to read everything James Patterson wrote, essentially. You know, Lisa Turkhurst. You I mean, people follow that author for an ever, ever. Max Lucado was one of our authors. So they just read everything he writes. Um, whereas they're writing, the, the, their smaller publisher with the work for hire solely does a lot of topical based kind of things, especially, like I said, gift books and devotionals and things like that. So, or it could be collections of essays. That'd be work for hire, I guess, in a way. So we don't publish that many here at Nelson Books, not collections of essays either. So, so you know, you all are, you know, kind of some of the big kids on the block in terms of, you know, the, the size of, of Harper and the, and the, um, you know, reputation, the prestige, the authors that you predominantly publish are very highly established and, and acclaimed and, you know, uh, successful, as opposed to, you know, a lot of folks are just getting started. So how do you perceive the approach for first-time authors, new, new folks who are just getting started, of getting their first books published with one of the smaller publishing houses? And then, you know, working their way up, so to speak, you know, um, that they prove themselves in that context. Um, is that something that is a good stepping stone that a Harper would look to, um, you know, latch on to? Um, to publish with a smaller house first. Yes, absolutely. Um, but, okay, this is totally my perspective right now. It could change. But when I have an agent sending me a proposal, which has happened a couple of times, from an author who has signed two books with a smaller house, and honestly, some small houses can do a great job. They have, they have a creative marketing plan, and they will have bestsellers. But in, in, by definition, they just don't have the same resources behind them, the same distribution, the same largeness and scale of staff, and um, maybe not the same marketing budget. And so um, their sales numbers will be a little lower than one we hope we can do. So one book with a smaller publisher that has done well, that is a, is a big appeal to me. If they still have a second book to come, um, and the agent is pitching me their next book idea, number three, I can't even really touch it until we know if that second book, how it's going to do in the market. My sales guys can't go to Barnes & Noble and say, we have this next book coming in. They'll say, well, we have, there's number two is coming before your number three, and we, it may be a bomb. It may not go. The publisher might not even put, put a lot behind it. I don't know why that would happen, but sometimes it does happen. And then you'd have this book with really slow, low sales numbers. You're not building your market that way. You're not building your audience base. And we like to see growth. In fact, that's why we usually sign authors is because we see they're go-getters. They're really working hard. They want to grow. They want to keep writing. We want to put everything behind them to help them keep going in that direction. And so um, we, I totally encourage you to write um, and get published by a small house, but I encourage you to do one book <laughs> and and then see if you can take your next book to a bigger house if, if, that's, if that's your desire. I mean, some people self-publish because that's just what they think God wants them to do with their book, too. But if you're trying to get to Harper, this is a, a, a good avenue for that. Um, for first-time authors, you know, I would encourage you to build work on creating some kind of a platform that we talked about. It could be online, a website, it could be writing for newspapers, but just some way to get your name known um, and to definitely go to writers' conferences and learn more and more about the industry and how to get your books out there. Um, some bookstores, independent bookstores, have great workshops and things about that. So look locally about how to how to grow and get break out as a first-time author because I, I've seen some great um, webinars kind of like this one or I've just watched them on YouTube um, that have been hosted by 
uh, conferences or even bookstores. So. so one of the questions I've been asking each of our speakers is what books do you recommend for writers? Um, you know, about the craft of writing. Um, it seems like each yeah. person kind of has their own little favorites. So what, uh, what would you put into that category? Hmm. That's a good question. Hmm. I used to recommend for my fiction authors, self-editing for fiction authors, um, on writing, um, Stephen King's book. Um, um, Stephen King's book actually has a lot of good material about its different levels. He talks about what a paragraph is, <laughs> the structure of a paragraph. And then he'll talk about big picture things like um, how he comes up with his ideas. And so um, I mean, he's really a good writer. I know people kind of um, brush him off in some ways because he's such a, a popular writer. You know, he's so big um, in a way that, it, 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 but if you look at his craft, he is a, he's a true writer. He understands that craft. He understands the use of language and word choice. Um, and I think he's a really impressive writer. Um, let's see. Who else have I? Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird book I've always recommended. I, when I teach college English, I always teach her um, shitty first drafts essay. So just to get it down on paper, just to start writing, and she really gets into the angst and the hardness of writing. Um, and I think that's a validating factor. But she also has some good tips in Bird by Bird that I've, I've, ta I've taught from at writers' conferences. So I'm trying to think of what other ones I um, I can't think of any other ones. You might want to tell me some, because I need some more to add to my list to tell my authors. But. Well, the two that you mentioned have been mentioned previously, by the way. Okay, good, good. <laughs> so you're not, uh, you're not out of bounds by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> good news, good news. They're good books. I don't think I've looked in a while, honestly, to see what else has been around since those have come out. I'm sure there are some good newer ones. Um, James Scott Bell has some good books out there in general about writing the craft and um, I recommend him. So um, there's a lot for fiction that uh, now I'm not in fiction. So I would, um, I'm nonfiction, but there are a lot of good ones for fiction. David, is it McKee? Um, he has a good book for fiction writers um, that he used to reference a lot. So anyway. So what would you say are some unmet needs in the market right now? Topical areas that you think are underrepresented in terms of books? Um, you know, I've been bantering around, which is, might be too esoteric, but there's so much research about we're so connected more than ever before, you know, social media and internet, uh, the world's kind of getting smaller because we can connect with people on the other side of the world so well, but there's now a bigger drive for um, uh, books or ways to combat loneliness in a way that people feel more isolated than ever before. Um, people are researching that. There's ministers of loneliness at some colleges and uh, other nonprofits and things. So um, how, what is that phenomenon and how can we speak into that as Christians um, and, and how to um, create community in ways with this new temperature that we have in our culture um, to really support each other in ways that are vulnerable and authentic, which I think are the kicker, you know, because you can sort of present yourself in a way online that's not vulnerable and authentic. Um, so we're all kind of purveyors of our own publicity. <laughs> and so to really think about that and how to um, create meaningful connection. And I, I wonder how what kind of books there will be out there to help with that. Um, and to create some writer or voice. It could be about technology, but I don't think technology is really the thing. It's just how our culture has really changed um, and, and why there's more loneliness and disconnection now than ever before. So. so what about the other end of the spectrum? I mean, are there too many memoirs? Is that already saturated? Or, uh, <laughs> or is that something that you still see as a viable possibility? 
I love memoir. I love memoir. So um, I will always advocate for memoir. In fact, I have three on my uh, three on my list in the last two years. I've acquired that are memoir. Four, I think. Um, one is a serial killer's daughter. She's talking about her father and how she grew up with him and didn't know. And then another one is a gal in Texas who um, befriended a homeless man and took him into her home. And um, let's see, another one. Well, I just won't tell you them all. But I love, I love, those are the ways to really, um, you know, experience another person's perspective. When for a while Harry Potter was not popular among evangelical evangelical parents or Christians, um, I was really mortified by that concept that they shouldn't read it, be the magic or whatever the reasons were, the kids shouldn't read it, and um, or they shouldn't read books that were about sad things happening to kids. I don't mean graphic things, but hard things. And that's changed some, thank God. Judy Bloom paved that way. But that how are we going to really understand somebody else's experience and perspective if we don't have books like memoir, if we don't have, oh, fiction can help you do that, but that's fiction. So memoir, we published Ghost Boy here about the man who was in a coma and slowly came out of it and was not able to speak or move for several for a while while he was still in his coma and slowly came out of it and uh, what that was like for him to be unresponsive but still his brain was alert and awake and he could hear um, and that was a best-selling book here so I just to me there's nothing better than a memoir to just understand human conditions and human um, the capacity for hopefully we, we publish more inspirational memoir here mind you so typically they have a happy ending of some sort um, because it's Christian publishing so but to see the power of um, the spirit in, in people and what they can overcome with with God and with the community of Christians around them so um, but that won't be the, the only thing of course the books about it by any means so but I, I love memoir it's harder sell I agree because um, Will people care? Is it the writing? I mean, how is it unique? I mean, I give a lot of memoir that honestly I'll say, well, it was you needed to write it for you. But I don't think there's a broad enough appeal here for um, a broader market. <clears throat> it's how to discern that, I think, is the kicker when you have a story or writing piece that's going to go broader about you and your personal story. So. So my last question is kind of just a real tactical thing that I'm still personally confused about. And, <laughs> and I'm sure if I am, then there must be other people who are too. So within HarperCollins Christian Publishing, you mentioned Thomas Nelson and Zondervan. Right. So my first question is, is Thomas Nelson and Nelson Books exactly the same thing? No, not exactly. Um, Thomas Nelson was technically acquired by HarperCollins, and it was it already encompassed W Group Publishing at the time. So W Group is part of Thomas Nelson. So um, and W is a, a, a sort of a sister imprint to Nelson Books. They're both under Thomas Nelson. Um, so we have really three imprints um, that publish nonfiction trade books under HarperCollins Christian Publishing, Zondervan, W Group, Nelson Books. Nelson Books is one of the oldest ones, around the longest. Um, Thomas Nelson was started in 18, hmm, I forget, on a, a street that was a West Bow in London, or Scotland, so I think that's correct. Anyway, um, it's just, it's a very old publishing company. I don't know the history as much of, um, of Zondervan and W, newer, um, but Thomas Nelson was the first, I guess, in this in this sort of in this conglomerate conglomeration of publishing groups. Okay, so so um, so we should think of those three: uh, Nelson Books, W, and Zondervan. Yeah. Um, now there's another division of Harper that does spiritual books that's not part of Harper Christian, which is right. Harper One. Right. And it used to be Harper San Francisco was their name right. until at some point in time they changed names. Are there any other groups within the broader part of Harper that you would consider also, not necessarily Christian, but spiritual in nature? Uh, under Harper? I just know Harper One myself. Um, there are definitely other publishers that do spiritual. 
Uh, no, I was just strictly speaking within HarperCollins, you know, corporate. Oh, I don't know. Honestly, I don't. Um, no, not not just for spiritual. Not just it'd be Harper One and Us. Now, other books like we do cross over a little bit sometimes and pick up a spiritual spirituality book, just regular Harper. Um, but it's not it's not as common because they don't specialize in it, of course. So, um, you know, but they could still pick it up. Like we pick up stuff that Donovan might publish or that Waterbook um, might publish or whatever. So we all kind of have that. Um, so how does Westbo fit into all of this? Well, Westbo, ironically, was the fiction imprint for a long time. When I first started acquiring here, I was part of Westbo Press. I was part of the naming of that, that division. We came up with the logo. We did the three-day retreat to come up with the vision and the mission statement. Um, and then um, it changed iterations, so we moved that name over to um, just the self-publishing arm. So the um, Westbo is the self-publishing arm of HarperCollins Christian. And we look at those books as well. Our, the publisher over there in that division sends us a report every, um, about every two weeks or so about what books are really selling well. And Pete is Nikolai is his name. He'll come and talk to us. And we has a book that we, we think he thinks might be appealing and it's selling well, gaining some traction. So it's definitely a, um, a way to get um, in the door here in a way, in a certain way. Um, we have, they've definitely, we've definitely picked up books from there. So it's a well-run, we have some good feedback. And it's well-run and they get, people get what they really ask for and get to work with the team there. So it's a, but that's the self-publishing unit. So that's another kind of confusing factor to me too. When I think of self-publishing, I think of literally, I'm taking something that I wrote, I formatted it into the proper textual file, right. I upload it to Amazon CreateSpace, yeah. and I start selling it. So, so to me, that's what self-publishing means. But okay. you're not alone in that there are a lot of folks that refer to these other entities. Sometimes people call them hybrid, hybrid publishers. Um, but like Westbo, it's not what I was describing as self-publishing, but it's typically called that. So how does what Westbo differs, for instance, from what you all do? Um, Why are they called self-publishing as opposed to just another division of trade publishing of HarperCollins? You, you, you actually pay, the author pays to use the services of Westbo. There's a package fee for all those services. And so um, it's, it's definitely... Well, it's kind of a pay, to, a pay to publish, but you've got the similar resources in terms of editors or marketing or what have you that you would have, maybe not as many resources, right. but, but, you, but some of those same resources that would exist in a more traditional trade publisher. It's just as opposed to the author getting an upfront royalty, an upfront advance, it's the other way around. The author is actually paying to get right. somebody to do that work for them. Is, right. that, is that a way I should think of it? Somewhat, yes, I think so. I mean, it's just not the same. You uh, um, wouldn't have the solid um, backing of maybe a full marketing plan and execution. They don't have their books presented at our sales conferences, per se, to, for the salespeople to take into their key accounts. Um, it's, it's certainly more dependent on the author to pay the money to do their own, you know, pitching and selling of the book. You don't have as much of the staff to do all the distribution, all the sales, all the marketing, all the planning that you have when you are with one of the traditional imprints of HarperCollins Christian. Okay, so, so you're, really, really, you're really paying for edit, editorial support then mostly then, sounds like editorial and some marketing and some they still have some design options it's more of package it's almost like when you buy a house in one of those neighborhoods you know we get to pick you have four choices for the floor you have four choices for the cabinet I mean I'm way oversimplifying but there's package deals for how much how you want to put together your book and so they still make it look very professional I mean they make sure you get it that uh, professionalism in it um, 
and still get some design options for the cover. And those are options, that meaning you can't, you're not going to start from scratch. They have sort of bases, base ones to choose from and things like that. So, um, and it's, it's a great option for people who, maybe it's an insurance company who has this great book. They're the owner, um, he's a, you know, they're a big insurance company. He wants to write down uh, his, the story of his company and also some tips for, you know, types of insurance and whatnot. And uh, it wouldn't really be a, a something we do in the trade book division because it's not really for a general market. It's for a very, very, very niche market. Um, and so that really fits them more than it would fit us to do a self-publishing with the Westco option. But they still get all the professionalism behind it, the advice, how to, uh, they get some editing, they get some typesetting and design for the interior, a good choice of a professional looking cover design. Um, and some, just some good advice in general. It just doesn't go through all the pieces and all the supports that you have in the other divisions, of course. Okay, good. Thank you. That that's very helpful. I appreciate that, Jenny. Um, sure. I know. I know. I wasn't clear on exactly what that meant and what it involved. So um, I think it's helpful um, to have that kind of an explanation. So thank you. Yeah. Sure. You're welcome. You're welcome. So we're way over our hour, but uh, it's really been okay, wonderful. Jenny, thank you so much for spending so much time with us and going into all the details about all the different aspects of book publishing. We really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for what you do with these conferences. I look forward to going to the Publishing in Color um, this summer, too. So. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, we're looking forward to uh, getting you involved there, Jenny. So thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Um, thank you for listening to this uh, <laughs> this teaching of very detailed esoteric information. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. So long. Thank you.